Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about doctors of the church. Find out what they are, who they are, how they're declared, and more. Then Bishop focuses on St. Hilary, a bishop and doctor of the church, whose feast day we celebrate today. He lived in the fourth century, was married, and only eight years after his conversion was asked to be a bishop. He ended up battling the Arian heresy, which denied the divinity of Christ. So he was sent into exile where he wrote what Bishop Rhodes calls his greatest work. Find out more in this episode. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us for another exciting episode. We're going to talk about the doctors of the church today, which I have a lot to learn about them. Or do you mean by that the MDs, the one who were physical that's doctors? Right. No. <laughs> well, that's a whole other. There are probably more medical doctors of the Catholic Church than there are doctors of the Catholic Church, would you say? As far as saints? As, yeah, canonized saints? That, I don't know, because there's 36 doctors of the church. Yeah. I, I don't think there's that many medical doctors okay. who are. I there's, mean, there are a few. A I mean, they say Cosmas and Damien were medical doctors. And sure. St. Luke, of Saint course, Luke. was a physician. St. Uh, Giuseppe Moscati. Oh, yeah. St. Gianna. Uh, so that's about five right yeah. there. <laughs> okay. But I don't think there's 36. Uh, you're probably right. If you had to name somebody a doctor of the church that isn't a doctor of the church, who who do you think is would be on, oh. on your list? Well, there are a few. Okay. And one would be Irenaeus. Okay. Remember, I made that proposal about a year ago to the U.S. bishops because the French bishops were proposing to the Pope that St. Irenaeus be named a doctor of the church, and they needed some support. So I asked if the U.S. bishops would support it, and it was unanimous. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but... It hasn't happened, so so much for our influence, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> if it does happen, saw, we'll credit you. Oh, no. You, you know what I wonder why? Uh, one of the things is um, none of the doctors of the church were martyrs. And I wonder, huh. isn't this an interesting question? I don't know. But I was thinking that if you look in the Missal, there's the common for doctors of the church with prayers, and then there's the common for martyrs. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if they don't want to create a liturgical double thing there by making a martyr a doctor of the church. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Crossover. I have no idea. Yeah. Could you find out? Could you I, check with I will. the Holy just, Father uh, about that? Yep. I'll just double check uh, and we'll, we'll add it to the end of the show. <laughs> His response. <laughs> All right. Uh, Do you have an opening prayer for us today, Bishop? Well, why don't we pray the prayer from mass today for St. Hillary? Okay. Is that okay? Who is a doctor of the church? Yep, doctor of the church. So today we're celebrating a doctor of the church, and he was a great bishop. And it's the day I was installed as bishop of today, Fort Wayne South Bend, 11 years ago, hard to believe. Wow. But one of the reasons that this date was chosen was because it's a feast of a bishop. So huh. when we were looking at the calendar, and I knew I had to come sometime in early, February, early January, or the first part, first two weeks of January, first thing I did is, are there any bishops during this time? And sure enough, St. Hilary. So I began my ministry as bishop in 
Fort Wayne South Bend on this wonderful saints feast. Well, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that we may rightly understand and truthfully profess the divinity of your Son, which the Bishop St. Hilary taught with such constancy, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. St. Hilary of Poitiers, pray, pray for, for us. us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop. When we talk about doctors of the church, you, you mentioned this does not mean that they're a medical doctor. It also doesn't mean that they had a, a PhD or any right. specific type of education. So what are we talking about whenever we mention doctors of the church? First of all, it must be a saint. Okay. So someone who is outstanding in holiness, mm -hmm. okay? But the reason that they're named a doctor of the church is because of their outstanding contribution to, to theology, to the understanding of the faith. In other words, could be their interpretation of the scriptures or the development of Christian doctrine but that they have a very deep intellectual contribution to the church. And usually they have a lot of writings that uh, the church then recommends as authentic teaching of the Catholic tradition. So these are outstanding scholars, outstanding wisdom and knowledge, basically. Okay. There are 36 and it, it has to be uh, a person is named a doctor of the church by the Pope. I guess I haven't heard of one becoming a doctor of the church except by a decision of the Pope. This idea of doctors of the church really began back in the early Middle Ages when they started, when popes started to recognize some saints as doctors of the church. Now, during the time of the church fathers, which was basically approximately 100 AD till 800 AD, the, the age of the fathers of the church, eight of those fathers of the church have been named doctors of the church. And um, four from the West so they were Latin speaking, the Western half of the Roman Empire, and four from the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, which was Greek speaking. So the four great Western fathers and doctors of the church are St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, and St. Gregory the Great. Okay, all great scholars uh, have had so much of an influence on our theology. The four great Eastern doctors of the church, again, this is from those early centuries, from the first millennium, were St. Athanasius, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory of Nazianzen, and St. John Chrysostom. So Athanasius, Basil, Gregory of Nazianzen, and John Chrysostom. 
they kind of stand out because they're called the ecumenical fathers because they had such widespread influence. Like these Latin fathers and doctors of the church even had influence on the East and, and vice versa with the Eastern fathers having an influence on the West. Also during this period of the church fathers, there were eight others who have been recognized as doctors of the church. So when you add eight plus eight, that's 16. So 16 of the doctors of the church were from the patristic period. Okay. So they were, you know, those, those earlier centuries. So the other ones are St. Ephraim, the Syrian, St. Hilary, that were feast we celebrate today, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Leo the Great, St. Peter Chrysologus, and the last of the Latin fathers of the church, St. Isidore of Seville, and the last of the Greek fathers of the church, St. John Damascene. <laughs> then after that period, the patristic period, we have starting the Middle Ages, and we have 11 doctors of the church from the Middle Ages. And I think you'd recognize a lot of these names, maybe not all of them, but a lot. St. Bede, St. Bede the Venerable, St. Peter Damien, St. Anselm, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Hildegard of Bingen. By the way, St. Hildegard was only made a doctor of the church recently under Pope Benedict. Huh. So that's one of the most recent doctors of the church, but she lived in the Middle Ages. She lived in the 11th, 12th century, well, 12th century. So uh, it took 800 years for her to become a doctor of the church. St. <laughs> Anthony of Padua, St. Albert the Great, St. Bonaventure, of course, the great St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Catherine of Siena. So there's a couple women now. Mm -hmm. St. Gregory of Narek. St. Gregory of Narek is the most recent saint to become a doctor of the church. He was proclaimed a doctor by Pope Francis about five or six years ago. And the third St. Gregory. So if you want to be a doctor of the church, you've got a three in 36 chance if your name is Gregory. That's right. Because we have story. Gregory the Great and Gregory of Nazianzen, Gregory <laughs> of Narek. That's true. I never noticed that. So, of the, the 16 of the doctors who are also church fathers, would that yes. make up all of the church fathers? Or are there other people that we would classify as church fathers that are not also doctors of the church? Yeah, like Irenaeus, Ignatius of Antioch. Okay. There'd be others, right? Those are yeah. also fathers of the church. Yes, and others, yeah. Yep. Is, it, is that a less formal designation, the fathers of the church? Or is there a specific list of who are the fathers of the church? Uh, I think there's a specific list, but, you know, I'm trying to remember how they were declared fathers of the church. I'm not sure it was just a, something that the popes declared them fathers of the church. That would be in the case of the doctors of the church. Mm -hmm. It might just be that they've been generally considered so by, by the Christian people. Yeah, popular opinion yeah. or something? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, you have those 11 of the Middle Ages, and notice two of them are women. There's only four women who've been named doctors of the church, and that's only since 1970 when Paul VI named St. Teresa of Avila and St. Catherine of Siena 
as doctors of the church. And then Pope Benedict added St. Hildegard. Oh, and John Paul added St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower. Okay. But anyhow, then there were seven from the 16th century. Now you say, how is there seven from this one century? Well, the reason is that was during the Protestant Reformation. Uh -huh. So these were great Catholic scholars that were part of the Counter-Reformation what we can call the Catholic Reformation. St. John of Avila. By the way, very recent, he was also named a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict. And I want to mention something very interesting. Neither St. Hildegard or St. John of Avila are on the universal calendar of the church. I think all of, and St. Gregory of Narek either, I think all of the others are on the universal calendar. And I'm just wondering when they're going to be put on the universal calendar. If they're doctors of the church, right. I think they should have a, a memorial, you know? I mean, yeah. wouldn't it be nice to be able to celebrate the feast of, of St. Hildegard and the feast of St. Gregory of Narek, the feast of St. John of Avila? So, those aren't currently even optional Memorials? No, no, they're not even okay. optional. Like today, St. Hilary is an optional memorial. Okay. Uh, it's not a obligatory memorial, but at least it's on the universal calendar. Right. The other ones from the 16th century are St. Teresa of Avila. So we have these two doctors from Avila, St. John of Avila, St. Teresa of Avila. St. Peter Canisius, St. John of the Cross, another great Carmelite like St. Teresa, St. Robert Bellarmine, who was a Jesuit, St. Lawrence of Brindisi, who was Franciscan, and St. Francis de Sales. But notice none of those are from the East. They're all from uh, the West. Okay. So that's the 16th century. Then, since then, we only have two in the modern period. I think that's really something. St. Alphonsus Liguori, he lived in the 18th century, and St. Therese, who lived in the 19th century. So we don't have a 20th century doctor of the church. Hmm. I'm wondering about John Paul. What right. do you think? And Benedict. Right. Maybe. You know, I'm, I'm wondering if someday, because they're intellectual. When you read their writings and their encyclicals and everything, I mean, I think an outstanding contribution to the intellectual life of the church. Mm-hmm. But I imagine that could potentially take decades or centuries for that them to be recognized as that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. I agree. Do you want to talk a little bit more about any of them? Maybe, maybe today about because I don't think a lot of people know about Saint Hilary. Yeah, I mean, do you I, think? I, I I don't know why he's not really talked about that much. Well, you know what? We don't know much about his personal life before he became a bishop. So like a lot of these saints, we know about their upbringing and things like that, but there's really not much that we know about him except from his own writings. Hmm. But St. Hilary lived in the fourth century. And of course, remember the fourth century, there were these heresies like Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ. And Hillary, we know, grew up in a pagan family in what is today France. At that time, it was called Gaul. And he was born 
in a pagan family, so he was not raised Christian, but he was raised with a very good education in Latin and Greek and the classics. He studied philosophy, Greek philosophy, and he started studying the Bible. And he began to see how what he was reading in the Bible was compatible with philosophy that he had studied and with the sciences. And this was a very gradual process. It's not like he became, you know, immediately a Christian. It wasn't until he was in his 30s that he became Catholic, that he got baptized. And by that time, he was already married. So he had a daughter. He was married. Also, and they got, they became Catholic with him. They got baptized too. So this was in the year 345. It wasn't long after, about eight years later, that the people of the city, Poitiers in France, called for him to be made their bishop. So he's only Catholic eight years. Already the people are, are wanting him to be bishop. So he was ordained the bishop. By the way, you say, well, how could he become a bishop if he was married? Basically at that time, you could get ordained as a married man, but then you were expected to practice celibacy. Okay. And they would live a more austere lifestyle. You know, they were really bishops were supposed to kind of be like monks that they lived a life of prayer and asceticism. So, so that was interesting. So when he became Bishop of Poitiers, the church was in the middle of a big fight with uh, Arianism. Now, Remember, the Council of Nicaea had already taken place like 30 years earlier. So you think that it was resolved, but no, the Arians continued. There was still this heresy, and, you know, a lot of people didn't accept the teaching of Nicaea. So they still believed that Christ was only human, not divine. So Hillary, very early on as a bishop, had to defend. Christ's divinity. As a matter of fact, a lot of the bishops in that region of France, of Gaul, were Arians. So his, he had brother bishops who didn't accept the teaching of the Council of Nicaea. Hmm. So these other bishops really didn't like Hillary because Hillary was teaching that Christ was, was truly divine. So the bishops appealed to the emperor, his name was Constantius II, who also was Arian. He had Arian beliefs, some Arian beliefs. So he exiled Hillary. Uh, so he wasn't a bishop, I don't know how long, but he, was, he went into exile to Phrygia. Phrygia sounds frigid, doesn't it? He's banished to Phrygia, which is, I think, modern-day Turkey, if I'm not mistaken. But Hillary, even though he was in exile, he continued to defend the divinity of Christ and wrote his greatest work, which is how I started learning about Hillary when I was studying theology, was because of his book that's called On the Trinity, De Trinitate, a magnificent work on this central mystery of our faith, the Holy Trinity. Now, an interesting thing about Hillary, and this is part of his holiness, is even though he was so orthodox and fully adhered to the teaching of the Council of Nicaea, 
he wouldn't just reject the Arians, whether they were Arian bishops or priests or laity. He just tried to explain. He tried to help them to understand and to accept the doctrine of the Trinity because he knew that a lot of them weren't intentionally heretics, that they just needed more understanding and more knowledge. So he was very patient. He was very charitable towards these people who were in heresy. Eventually, when the emperor died, which was in the year 361, Hillary was able to return to his diocese. He was able to return to Poitiers in Gaul. And when he got back, he continued to preach the truth, even though, you know, in that area, there were a lot of Arians. And what happened was people started accepting his teaching, including a lot of his brother bishops. So he was able to bring a lot of people back to the true faith. It's interesting. He also spoke out against the, there was a bishop in Milan called Auxentius, who was an Arian. And uh, Hillary denounced this bishop, Auxentius. Others opposed Auxentius as well. And the one who took Auxentius's place, who succeeded him, was St. Ambrose. Huh. So, who then you know, influenced the conversion of St. Augustine. So, all these wonderful saints are connected. One of the uh, students that um, St. Hilary taught when he was a uh, bishop became St. Martin of Tours. Great bishop, St. Martin of Tours. Hilary was, uh, has been celebrated many, many centuries as a saint, but he was only named a doctor of the church in 1851. So it took more than a thousand years until he was named a doctor of the church. But primarily it's because of his work on the Trinity, his book on the Trinity. So you say you've read that book? Not, not cover to cover, studied passages of it when I was in my course on the Trinity okay. in seminary. I okay. should really read the whole thing, though. This may have been a while. That would be a good New Year. You were talking about the last, last episode, New Year's resolutions. Uh -huh. Maybe that should be my resolution to read the whole work of St. Hilary on the Trinity. Is it a big text? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes. Is there anything specific about it that you remember or that, that kind of stands out as... Um, you, you know, taught. there's, um, yeah, you know, Pope Benedict, uh, this kind of reminds me of Pope Benedict. He gave a series of Wednesday audience talks on the several of these doctors of the church. And one of the, his audience talks was on St. Hilary. And when Pope Benedict wrote about him, he quoted some parts of, of St. Hilary's work on the Trinity. And, and really, when you look at it, when you read this work, it's kind of his own personal journey toward knowledge of God. So, what Hillary does is he shows, not only in the New Testament, but also many passages of the Old Testament when, in which he said Christ, the mystery of Christ appears. That scripture, both the Old and New Testament, testifies to the divinity of the Son and the Son's equality with the Father. 
But his whole Trinitarian theology is based on the formula of baptism that Jesus gave us, that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He also wrote a few other things. He wrote some treatises on the Psalms, etc. But here's a quote that Pope uh, Benedict made of from on the Trinity that I really liked. Hillary wrote, Jesus has commanded us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is, in the confession of the author, of the only begotten one, and of the gift. Notice he refers to the Father as the author, the Son as the only begotten one, and the Holy Spirit as the gift. Beautiful. Continuing with the quote, the author of all things is one alone, for one alone is God the Father, from whom all things proceed. And one alone is our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist. And one alone is the Spirit, a gift in all. In nothing can be found to be lacking so great a fullness, in which the immensity in the Eternal One, the revelations in the image, joy in the gift, converge in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And uh, elsewhere, it's particularly beautiful. Hillary writes, God knows not how to be anything other than love. He knows not how to be anyone other than the Father. Those who love are not envious, and the one who is the Father is so in his totality. This name admits no compromise, as if God were Father in some aspects and not in others. This is kind of like when you read a work like this, it's kind of like you just don't read it. You kind of, you kind of stop and think about it. You, you reflect on it. You, you kind of ingest it. There's a prayer that I like of St. Hilary at all, also. It's kind of simple. But it it's, um, refers to the Trinity. It's, you can find this prayer in his work on the Trinity. He says, he prays, Obtain, O Lord, that I may keep ever faithful to what I have professed in the symbol of my regeneration when I was baptized in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, that I may worship you, our Father, and with you, your Son, that I may deserve your Holy Spirit, who proceeds from you through your only begotten Son. Amen. Do you think that the, the prayers and what he's talking about from the, of the Trinity, is that divinely inspired, or is he just very smart? Um, I both. think it's a fruit of his prayer. I think there is a certain, I mean, he's very smart. I mean, he's a great philosopher, but I think also he was a man of prayer. So I think these prayers also come from his spiritual life and therefore an inspiration of God's grace. Coming up, we'll talk about the newest named doctor of the church. But if anybody has any questions, you can ask them by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. Text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more on the doctors of the church, specifically the most recently named St. Gregory, coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. 
In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Been talking about the doctors of the church and got a nice little rundown of the 36 doctors of the church and a more in-depth explanation on who St. Hilary, who is a bishop, doctor of the church, feast day is today. And one of the things that you were talking about, Bishop, was how there are so many of them that come in the 16th century because of the Counter-Reformation, these saints mm-hmm. of the, it's actually a book called True Reformers, Saints of the Catholic Reformation, and talks about these, these saints that come out of these times of trials in the church. And, you know, you mentioned with St. Hilary, you know, this Arian heresy that he was writing to, to debunk and to persuade people to help them understand the truth of the Trinity. Is there something to that, that these times of trials, whether it's, I guess there's a need then that the church has for these great minds, these great writers to come forth. Uh, and, and maybe if there hadn't been any troubles, then St. Hilary wouldn't have had any reason to write these <laughs> great documents. And so that yeah. it's kind of when there is trouble, then we have these great saints to help the church in those times of need. I think you're exactly right. I mean, when you look at the times of most of these doctors, they were they were times of great, doc, uh, you know, where there were some significantly problematic heresies. So, I mean, look at St. Athanasius. I mean, why is he a doctor of the church? He was also fighting the Arians. Hmm. So, he wrote some beautiful things that were really to defend the true faith against the heretics. When you think about some of those 16th century saints, I mean, this is the Counter-Reformation. So, you had people defending the faith. You had the great reformers like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross who reformed the Carmelite order and religious life, or the great Jesuit Peter Canisius, St. Robert Bellarmine, another great Jesuit. So, yeah, I agree. And then in the Middle Ages, there were quite a few as well. And um, there were other heresies going on at that time, like the Albigensians. And there was also, you know, some certain things that that were going on in the church that produced these great saints, the renewal of monastic life. So, you have Bernard of Clairvaux, you know, in the in the 11th and 12th century. And, and then you have the Franciscan reform, which produced great saints like Anthony of Padua and Bonaventure, doctors of the church with rich teaching as well. So, yeah, it's, it's very true. Do you think that we're due for another season of great saints? You mentioned St. John Paul II potentially being a doctor of the church from the 20th century, but are we dealing with issues as grave today? Maybe, I don't know if you'd consider uh, relativism a heresy or you know even a scandal within the church that we've been fighting. Do you think that the times are as dire today as they were in these other times of history? Yeah, but it really began when you look from the Enlightenment on. Uh, so, you look at 19th century, that's the beginning of the modern era. So, you have... 19th and 20th century, I mean, you you have the growth of atheism, you know, you have right. com- atheistic communism and all of that. So, who are some of the great thinkers 
Catholic thinkers in this modern period who who may become doctors of the church. I think of Cardinal John Henry Newman. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think he could very well become a, a doctor of the church. I mean, he was confronting some very problematic uh, theology at that time, some of the beginnings of the problems that we still see today. Uh, certainly, John Paul II, I mean, his writings on faith and reason, on the splendor of truth, on the dignity of human life, and then so much of what Pope Benedict wrote, all of this is is fighting some of these modern or postmodern errors. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, as you see, a lot of these doctors of the church weren't proclaimed doctors until centuries later. So, it may be centuries before some of these great thinkers become doctors of the church. Well, and that was the case for our most recently named doctor of the church, who uh, I don't know really anything about him, uh, an Armenian (laughs) poet and monk, uh, also uh, one of our three Gregories. Yes. Gregory of Narek, I didn't know anything about either. Okay. I had seen his name because he's mentioned in the catechism okay. once regarding his devotion to Mary in one of the Mariological parts. But And there were a few times where John Paul II referred to Gregory of Narek, but I really knew nothing about him either. And what is really unique about him is that when he lived, he wasn't part of the Catholic Church. Now, let me explain, because this is really mind-boggling. He was a member of the Armenian Apostolic Church. So, he's from Armenia, and you know about the terrible genocide of the Armenians by the Ottoman Turks at the beginning of the 20th century, the first terrible genocide, the Armenian Genocide of 1915. Over a million Armenians lost their lives. Many of them, most of them were Christians. Well, that's the area where where Gregory of Narek lived and where he taught. He was a monk, as you said. So, it was on the centennial, the 100th anniversary of this Armenian Genocide that Pope Francis named Gregory of Narek, this Armenian, a doctor of the church. Now, how can a non-Catholic be a doctor of the church? That was my first question. Uh I mean, he was an Armenian apostolic Christian. I think it's important to understand at this point, I mean, very early on, the Armenian church didn't accept the teaching of the Council of Chalcedon. Now, the Council of Chalcedon took place in the 5th century, 451 AD, and they held that Christ had one combined human divine nature, and Council of Chalcedon taught that Christ had two separate natures, human and divine, but they are conjoined in the one person, the divine person of Christ. So, it's kind of like, seems to us today, rather technical disagreement, but In the 5th century, you know, that was a big deal. And so, there was a mutual condemnation of each other as heretics. So, the Catholic and the Orthodox and later Protestant, they all followed the Council of Chalcedon and the language used by the Council of Chalcedon. The Armenians didn't. And it wasn't until 
1996, that St. John Paul II and the head of the Armenian church, the patriarch, his name was Katolikos Karakin, said that really this was all a misunderstanding, that a lot of it was semantic, a lot of it was language, that really that controversy over what language to use shouldn't separate the churches. So that is why now these Armenian Christians would be allowed to receive Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Uh, so the Armenian Church, it's kind of saying, okay, they're, they're now, you know, there's a, a, a renewed understanding. But even back in the 18th century, part of the Armenian Church reunited with Rome in the 18th century and accepted the Armenian saints, including Gregory of Narek. So we could say he's kind of like grandfathered in. Uh-huh. Okay, he's been a Catholic saint right. ever since the 18th century. And that's why he can be declared a doctor of the church. So it's kind of weird. I mean, it's kind of, I shouldn't say weird. It's kind of unusual, but certainly none of his teaching is problematic. I mean, it's, it's just great teaching. Now, he was a monk, as you said, in Armenia, in a monastery, and um, he's best known for a, a work called The Book of Lamentations. We know one of the books of the Bible is the Book of Lamentations. Well, this mm-hmm. work of Gregory of Narek is this great literary piece that contains 95 prayers that are rich in their theology as well as poetry. We don't know a lot about Gregory's life. Where he lived in Armenia is, I guess, now it's part of Turkey. He became a monk. He wrote this book of Lamentations. It's considered his masterpiece, and it's a it's very mystical. It's very poetic, very meditative. It has these 95 chapters. It's quite lengthy. These chapters are prayers. Some are very long, some are small, so they're all addressing God. And one of the primary things about it is his desire to be perfect as taught by Jesus and his realization of his sinfulness and that it's impossible to become holy or to become perfect without God's grace. So this comes out very, it's really a masterpiece of spiritual literature. And it's a very famous work in the history of of Armenian literature. A lot of Armenian homes, they have this work, the Book of Lamentations. It's kind of uh, second only to the Bible. Hmm. even though it wasn't well known in the uh, in the west until he became a doctor of the church he had beautiful teachings about the blessed virgin mary i mean he didn't only write this work he wrote a commentary on that on the song of songs a, a lot of homilies and other prayers and hymns so he was a pretty prolific writer but his teachings on mary are very beautiful and that's how it got into the the catechism of the catholic church He was also fighting some heresies, even back then in medieval Armenia, but his his Book of Lamentations is um, 
you know, considered very, very orthodox. By the way, the Armenian church, well, Armenia was the first nation to ever officially become Christian. It became Christian before Constantine converted to Christianity. So I think a lot of people don't realize the ancientness of the church in Armenia. <laughs> and monasticism was, was really very strong in Armenian Christianity. Hundreds of monasteries, very vibrant monasteries throughout Armenia. They were considered the, the teachers, really. In his book on Lamentations, as I said, very poetic, deeply biblical, very, very personal. It's his dialogue with God in prayer, really speaking with God from the depths of his heart. So you kind of um, get a feeling of not only this intellectual level of Gregory's writings, but the level of his heart and his feelings in his experience of God. When the cardinal prefect of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints was talking about him after he was named a doctor of the church, he basically pointed out that Gregory of Narek's realistic appreciation for the gravity of sin was an important part of his doctrine, that this limits human beings and makes us incapable of speaking with God without the mediation of Christ, without the mediation of the incarnate word. And these profound reflections on the mystery of the Trinity, his defense of the sacraments as efficacious mediations of divine grace in the church, and his devotion to Mary. So I recommend, I mean, I've only read some quotes. It is a work that I would like to read sometime, you know, and, and to think about the history of, of the church in Armenia and then that terrible genocide that took place by the Ottoman government when between one and one and a half million Armenians were killed. It's sad that the Republic of Turkey today continues to not acknowledge this genocide that was done by the Ottoman Empire. So it was kind of significant that Pope Francis, on the centennial of the genocide, named St. Gregory of Narek a doctor of the church. Not only recognizes his intellectual and spiritual greatness, his poetry, his theology, but also kind of shows our appreciation and solidarity with the church in Armenia. So of the 36 doctors of the church, do you have a favorite? Oh, that's very hard. <laughs> I mean, Augustine and Aquinas... I'd probably, Teresa of Avila, I don't know, I can't, I can't <laughs> narrow it down. That's too hard a question. Which one have uh, you read the most from? Oh, man, I've read a lot of Augustine and Aquinas mm -hmm. and a lot of Teresa. Probably, it's just close between Augustine and Aquinas. I've read so much of both of them. Yeah. I, would, I, I can't say, but those would be the two top. Yeah. All right. As far as quantity. Yeah. Yeah. I've read many books. I've read a lot of the Summa of St. Thomas. I've read a lot of the works of Augustine. Continue to do so, actually. I've been recently reading his commentaries on the Psalms. Whose commentaries? Augustine's. Comment Augustine. Augustine's. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, this is great. I've, you know, we hear about the doctors of the church and the fathers of the church, and it's good to have some clarification over who is who and what's what. And, and uh, fascinating to hear just two of these kind of lesser known stories, I think, in Catholicism. We don't, we don't hear a whole lot. In fact, a lot of people probably think St. Hilary is a female. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. To, I know. At least if everyone forgets what I said about St. Hillary, they'll at least remember that it was a guy, that it right. was a man. He was a bishop. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can shoot us a text at the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Oh, by the way, I just thought... Maybe it's one of the listeners, if they're going to have a baby boy, they can name him Narek oh, okay. after St. Gregory of Narek. Wouldn't that Narek. be a good, good Narek? I like it. Yeah. Strong. Yeah. Narek. It's strong. Narek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. To listen to episodes anytime, search for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Hit subscribe and you won't miss a new show. To check out the entire archive, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop which is also where you can submit a question for a future episode or suggest a topic you'd like Bishop and Kyle to discuss. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.